She was the first woman to serve as White House press secretary. Now she's spearheading California's economic recovery efforts as a member of Governor Gavin Newsom's cabinet. We'll hear from Dee Dee Myers. Plus, a look at how the state attorney general's office might change under new leadership and now that it's not in constant warfare with the Trump administration. Welcome to California State of Mind from CalMatters and CAP Radio. I'm Elizabeth Aguilera in Los Angeles. And I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento. Elizabeth, there could be more help coming for people who are struggling because of the pandemic. Lawmakers and Governor Gavin Newsom just unveiled an economic relief package that's close to $10 billion. There's money in there for $600 relief checks for low-income families and for undocumented taxpayers. These people haven't gotten any help from federal stimulus packages, and there's also money for small businesses. Yeah, I heard about that package. The Senate Budget Committee was asking questions about the benefit for undocumented families, and they had to be reminded that this is a one-time stimulus, so not something that they have to budget for for years to come because they raised a lot of concerns about, you know, how many people could that be and what happens in the future. One other thing I wanted to talk to you about, Nicole, this week was I caught part of the governor's press conference out of the Coachella Valley this week, and someone asked him about a fracking bill. Of course, he was there to talk about vaccinations, and he was talking about essential workers and kind of praising people that were around. So he didn't really answer the question, but I think there's some history there, right? Yeah, it was really interesting to hear him kind of dodge that question because this is a bill that Newsom actually asked for like six months ago. He held this big press conference on electric vehicles and signed this executive order and said, legislature, send me a bill to ban fracking. I can't do it through an executive order, so send it to me and I'll sign it. So it... (laughs) So for him to say the day it it comes out to dodge the question and say, I don't know, I'm focused on the pandemic. I'm not sure about this bill right now. It was really interesting because he's the one who who asked for it. (laughs) Yeah, his um, response to that really led me to think about the recall that's happening and how that might be playing a role in his wanting to keep people focused on, you know, this good outreach that he's doing through these visits all across the state. The thing to keep in mind about the recall is, Newsom has to think about everything twice now. He's got to think about it as, okay, is this good for the state? Is this good for me? But now with the recall, he's got to add, how will this look six months down the line when I might be on the ballot for a special election? So I'm glad you mentioned that. But in terms of the vaccine, it's still unclear the timing for folks to get it, right? Dr. Fauci on the national level says one thing. California state officials say another. What else have you heard about it? Yeah, we've talked about that before on this podcast. The thing that happened this week that made me feel hopeful kind of for the first time is the Biden administration purchased 200 million vaccine doses. He says there will be enough for 300 million Americans to get their shots by the end of July. So to hear that these are, you know, these are coming. I felt hopeful about this for the first time, like the end might actually be in sight. Knock on wood. (laughs) That's definitely a glass half full uh, scenario, Nicole. I'm I, <laughs> because here in LA, the Dodger vaccination site has to close every few days because they don't have enough. Other sites in San Francisco are experiencing the same thing. So you know, the state's only getting one million a week, and they burn through those. Right? People mm-hmm. are lining up, they make appointments, they're getting to these places, and then they have to shut down uh, for a few days and wait for more. So when might we see the mass ramp up for that so that people can be as optimistic? as they want to be. That's the huge question. I've heard the governor say multiple times that he's waiting for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and that needs uh, FDA approval for distribution, but they're hoping that those will start coming out by June. So June, July, 
hopefully, fingers crossed. (laughs) We'll see. Well, we were talking about the big budget proposal earlier that Newsom released. One of the people who will be helping Governor Newsom as he figures out the specifics of this economic recovery package is a woman who broke a glass ceiling almost 30 years ago. Yes, Dee Dee Myers was the first female White House press secretary. She stood in the briefing room for two years during the Clinton administration. Um, Just a little look ahead for the rest of the week. Tomorrow at 11 o'clock, the president will sign the motor voter bill. Uh, Weather permitting, that'll be on the South Lawn. Then he'll have lunch with the vice president. Myers Uh, has been firmly uh, ensconced in the private sector since then, but in December, Newsom tapped her to join his cabinet. CalMatters reporter Lauren Hepler recently sat down with Myers to get her perspective on some of the issues facing Californians right now. And she joins us. Hey, Lauren, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me back. Lauren, I wanted to talk to you because you interviewed Dee Dee Myers recently, and she just joined Governor Newsom's staff. What is she doing? What's her role? So Dee Dee Myers was the first female White House press secretary. She was Bill Clinton's press secretary. She was previously at Warner Brothers down in L.A. And she's come in now as kind of Newsom's economy czar. She's taking over the state's business and economic development agency and also becoming Newsom's chief business advisor. And obviously this is coming at a really key moment. I was really curious to talk to her about kind of the bigger picture here, since we know there's all these different small business grant programs, unemployment still really stubbornly high. So there's definitely no shortage of issues for her to work on. Lauren, you mentioned just what I was going to ask about. Some of the big things she's going to oversee, like the Employment Development Department, which has been in the spotlight. You've been writing about them, uncovering what's happening there. What does she bring to this position that you think will make a difference for the state and for the people who interact with those agencies? Well, it was really interesting to hear her kind of scope out what was most important. And unemployment was actually one where she said the state labor department is taking the lead on that. So it seems like there's kind of this line being drawn between like business stimulus programs and unemployment, which we know is its own entire separate set of issues. And so the things that Myers seemed really focused on were small business grants, how we avoid what a lot of economists fear could be a wave of commercial evictions from storefronts and those sorts of things, uh, bankruptcies, all the things you kind of fear in a big recession, like we certainly saw in the Great Recession 10 years ago. Um, But then there's also some some kind of... um, things that straddle that line between work and life that she was really focused on. Like, obviously, we know that women in the workforce have been hit really hard by the continued emphasis on distance learning in a lot of public schools in particular. So there's a lot of different ways to kind of come at it. And another reason I was really interested in asking her about this is because D.T. Myers literally wrote the book on why women should rule the world. So I was curious kind of what she had to say about women taking on larger shares of home responsibilities and kind of what the role of government might be in all of this. As we know, women are particularly impacted in doing more of the homeschooling, right? Surveys show that they're doing substantially more single moms as well as partnered moms than their male partners. And that's obviously means we have to continue you know, to move forward to get kids back in school. One of the priority areas for the, for the grant program is daycare, right? It's another area that's been really disproportionately impacted and making it harder. It's, it's, it's very hard for you know, parents that do want to go back to work to find childcare if, if they have younger kids who aren't in school. So 
you know, small business support, reopening schools, you know, targeting child care among the small business grant programs, and, you know, just continuing to work with the legislature to figure out what else we can do to help. I was really curious in listening to your interview with her about her take on this California exodus. My husband is a journalist. I've said this a million times. He always says in journalism, three's a trend, right? So you get HPE, Elon, and Larry Ellison, and all of a sudden everyone's leaving California, but there's still somehow managed to be almost 40 million people who are still here. So that said, I, I think it's overblown. But I do think we have challenges as a state that we have to, you know, we have to continue to try to uh, address and face and, and, and work through. She called it overblown. I mean, like what? Right. We all know so many people who have left or moved or are thinking about going. So what did she mean by that? Yeah, I thought that was a really fascinating answer as well. Um, And I mean, I kind of hear where she's coming from on one hand, because as we've covered at Cal Matters, you can definitely find real examples on the ground of working people that just simply can't afford to live here anymore and are moving to places where they hope that their kids can go to better schools and they can buy higher quality housing and those types of things. But we also know that the California exodus narrative is one that's being fed by out-of-state political interests. There are groups making, you know, YouTube videos with millions of views or realtors that are running Facebook groups that kind of hype this as well. So I was really interested in Meyer's take, especially as someone who's been in California a long time now and grew up here, kind of what she sees as different this time around or how much of this is kind of dredging up familiar themes about moving out of state because it's, you know, better for tax purposes or those sorts of things. The taxes question is, is an interesting one. First of all, the governor said he's not going to raise personal income taxes. There will be no wealth tax, no increase in corporate taxes right this year uh, off the table. That's not something that has seemed to penetrate uh, as I as I make my rounds. The other thing is that, you know, this idea that California taxes are, are so high. Well, the top marginal rate is high, uh, but the actual tax burden for the average person is it's like 10th in the in the tenth lowest in the country for the overall tax burden because it's a very progressive tax structure. It, it, and it is a very progressive state. We have progressive tax structure. We have progressive laws. Um, we have, you know, we lead the country, if not the world, in some of our climate regulations or anti-global warming, anti-carbon. Uh, and so there are some costs and there are some challenges to that. And yet I think a lot of the people that are here are here because they support those kinds of uh, values. Why is it that 50% of capital, right, a venture capital goes to companies in California, while only like 1% goes to companies in Texas and Florida? I think Texas was 3% and Florida was 1%. There's a reason for that, right? There's an infrastructure here that supports an innovative economy uh, and that cre- continues to create these new industries, whether it's biotech or, you know, um, clean energy, zero emissions vehicles, our number one export, right, is, is, is now electric cars. And then all the ancillary businesses that get created by that and that are supported by the state and the state's kind of view, vision of how you create the future, which is dynamic new industries that balance climate and opportunity, right? That equity and opportunity can not only can live together, they have to live together. So that's not to say there aren't other challenges. The cost of housing is high. We need to continue to address that and getting, you know, continuing to dig into those problems and try to figure out new solutions, creative solutions, uh, is, is really important. It's so interesting to hear from her now after 
the many years she spent in the private sector. Did she talk at all about why she decided to come back to government work? Yeah, you know, that's interesting. She focused more on just the timing of it, kind of how she came in December 15th, which was, I think if I'm remembering right, like 10 days after the uh, pre-end of year shutdowns for the virus. So right mm-hmm. as things were getting really bad, we know that now, unfortunately, that was like the, the worst period California has seen to date. So she walked in, right, in her words, it was kind of a difficult moment that was made even yet more difficult because businesses were shutting back down. There was a lot of uncertainty for people about them and their family members' health. Um, And yeah, but she, Didi Myers had been involved in a previous business advisory group that was spun up last year. So she had been involved in the conversation before, um, but definitely interesting that she's uh, leapt in to take take on this expanded role. And so one last question, Lauren, do you think her experience with the Clinton administration will help her navigate Governor Newsom's administration? Or I mean, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I would imagine that it it would come in handy, right? Like one thing I asked her about, too, we all know that Gavin Newsom has a very unique way of speaking. He uses these phrases like meeting the moment (laughs) is one that comes up a lot foundational. There's I think there's like a whole guide that Cal Matters is is working on in that respect. It could be a Um, bingo card. I think it should be. Uh, yeah, Elizabeth, I think you should make that. That's a great <laughs> idea. But so I, I think like the extent that she can bring some clarity to some of these things that he, he's been talking about or help him kind of hone that message so that um, it's more understandable for, for a broad audience like you have to think about if you're working for the president of the U.S. I'm really curious kind of how, how that's going to shake out. Well, Lauren Hepler, thank you so much for joining us, economy reporter for Cal Matters. Thank you, Elizabeth. Okay, coming up, if President Biden has his way, Javier Becerra will become part of his cabinet. That means a new state attorney general. And that means changes could be coming at the top of California's law enforcement chain. Stay tuned for more California State of Mind. It's California State of Mind from Cap Radio and Cal Matters. I'm Nicole Nixon. And I'm Elizabeth Aguilera. President Biden has tapped California Attorney General Javier Becerra to head the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. Right now, that means dealing with year two of the global coronavirus pandemic. But for any successor to Becerra here in the Golden State, the Biden administration itself will usher in a sea change of priorities for the AG's office. Laurel Rosenhall covers politics for Cal Matters, and she's here with some details. We've also got Cap Radio state government reporter Scott Rod, and in a couple minutes, we'll go to him for a look at how the state is tracking COVID variants. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Good to be here. Thanks for having us on. So, Laurel, I, I want to start with you. Um, California Attorney General Javier Becerra might be heading to Washington to lead the Department of Health and Human Services. But first of all, I want to ask this first. He could face a tough confirmation hearing, right? Yeah, the Republicans in Washington are definitely making an issue out of his um, selection by President Biden to lead the Health and Human Services Department. So we will get some sense of how that goes. Actually, he should have his first hearing this upcoming week. Well, Becerra has been in the attorney general position since 2017. Can you give us a sense of the mark that he's left on that office in these past four years? I mean, he spent a lot of time going up against the Trump administration, right? 
Absolutely. That was really his um, kind of marquee thing was being the state of resistance, right? California was positioning itself against the Trump administration. The attorney general led that fight. He filed more than 100 lawsuits against the Trump administration, fighting all kinds of, of policies coming from the federal government on immigration, on health care, environmental policies. And of course, now, you know, with a Democrat in the White House, the job of attorney general is going to be really different. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little more. How does that change? What are the priorities for this office now that the White House is just a little bit more friendly with California now? Right. We're anticipating that the focus will become much more um, inward, much more focused on California. The portfolio of the attorney general's office is really broad. So they have control over all kinds of things related to consumer protection, um, Internet privacy, criminal investigations. There is one new responsibility that the office is going to be taking on that it has never had before. And so that's probably going to play into this as well. And that is? That has to do with investigating police shootings. Previously, the attorney general could step in on criminal investigations when the local prosecutor um, had a conflict or didn't want to or wanted assistance in some way. But under a new law that was just signed last year, the attorney general will be required to investigate all police shootings of unarmed civilians, all fatal police shootings of unarmed civilians throughout California. And so there's the possibility that depending on who gets this position and what their interest is, that they could really kind of use this position to advance uh, criminal justice reform, police reform, in regard to those investigations. And that is a really big topic right now. And a lot of people are still kind of staking, you know, where they want to be on this issue. When Newsom makes his pick for this office, I guess that will give us a sense of where he is and where he wants the state to go, correct? Yes, Newsom is a Democrat, and so he, we have every reason to expect he's going to pick a Democrat to be the attorney general. The question really more is about sort of how far left is he going to go? Is he going to go with more of a centrist Democrat who would maybe come from more of a law enforcement or prosecutor kind of background? Or was he going to go with someone who's going to be more um, you know, welcomed by the reformers and the Black Lives Matter community and the um, side that's really trying to change policing? Okay, so who are some of the names that are floating to the top? You know, two that are in top contention are Assemblyman Rob Bonta and Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg. But again, this is a secretive process. The governor, from all accounts, is keeping it very, very cloistered. And so there are several names circulating. Uh, in addition to those two I mentioned, um, Congressman Adam Schiff, who obviously gained a lot of prominence during the first impeachment of former President Trump. And then there are a couple of local prosecutors who may be in the mix. Uh, Diana Becton from Contra Costa County, who's more of a progressive prosecutor, and District Attorney Jeff Rosen from Santa Clara County, who has kind of the classic prosecutor background that you would think of for an attorney general. Those are some of the people in the mix. Okay, well, I want to turn to Scott now um, for something completely different, although I guess you could argue that there are detectives involved here as well, not law enforcement, but public health detectives. Um, Scott, you've been looking into some of the COVID-19 variants that are showing up here in California and how researchers are tracking them, something called genome sequencing. What 
is that, first of all? Well, first, it was a great transition from the criminal detectives to the public health detectives. <laughs> I thought that was very good. Thank you. So, genomic sequencing, the way it was described to me by one um, epidemiologist, is it essentially provides a breadcrumb trail for how a virus mutates over time. And that kind of sounds scary, but the reality is mut- uh, viruses mutate all the time. And most of the mutations, they're often benign. It's just how they sort of change and evolve over time. And you can actually use genomic sequencing trace a virus all the way back through this kind of chain to where the original outbreak was. The mutations start to raise alarms when they are either more contagious or potentially more deadly. And perhaps at the top of the list for concerns, such as in this moment right now, when a variant is resistant to a vaccine. So genomic sequencing can determine all of these things. Well, one thing that you've been trying to track yourself, Scott, is how this genomic sequencing effort is being managed and organized here in California. But it seems like the virus, you know, and these uh, new variants might be a little more organized than the state is in this effort, right? Yeah, I would say that's a fair characterization. Um, You know, the state is trying to stand up a network of genomic sequencing labs. And, uh, you know, labs have been doing some sequencing dating back to the early days of the pandemic. But as more and more variants have popped up, the urgency has increased. Mm -hmm. The state started its effort to organize labs in a network to do this sequencing back in the summer of 2020. And they put you know, millions of dollars behind trying to stand it up. But my reporting found that it's still this kind of patchwork that, Mm. you know, it, it was supposed to be this organized effort to figure out how specimens got to different labs and have labs talk to each other. But right now, there isn't that um, collaboration quite yet. You know, the takeaway is we're still pretty far behind from where we need to be in order to really keep track or keep close tabs on variants as they're mutating. Well, that's interesting and good to know, because I did want to ask you about these new variants and the numbers. Take the UK variant, for example. We know it's more contagious. People are starting to get worried about it. The state has logged around 200 cases of that, mostly in Southern California. But out of hundreds of thousands of cases over the past few weeks, you know, 200 doesn't sound like a lot. So I guess my question is, we're not looking at a complete picture on these variants, right? And and what trouble could that spell? Absolutely. If you ask an epidemiologist, you know, what does that 200 or so cases represent? Um, they'll say that represents really a small fraction of probably what's out there because you're only sequencing, again, a very small percentage of the cases that are out there. So when it comes to these variants, you know, it's impossible to sequence every single positive case. That would just be too time consuming and costly. But when when Californians hear that there are maybe a hundred, maybe a couple dozen of a certain variant in a certain area, that that certainly doesn't mean that those are the only variant cases in that in that place. It just means those are the ones that have been identified. Well, what do the researchers that you've talked to say needs to happen to make this system more relevant and useful? <laughs> Simply put, I mean, there needs to be more money, which like, you know, that's probably an obvious answer for, uh, you know, a lot of problems that we have. But um, the state in organizing its laboratories for genomic sequencing 
they didn't put a ton of money behind it. They've been kind of an organizing effort. But, you know, I talked to folks at the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, which is behind a lot of the sequencing that's happening in California. And they said, look, organization's great. Helping with communication's great. But ultimately, we need the funds to be able to do this very expensive work, which requires uh, expertise, which requires um, very expensive equipment. So that, in speaking to experts, that is one of the main ingredients that's missing right now is funding. Laurel Rosenhall from CalMatters and Scott Rod of Cap Radio. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks. Nicole, that was a great roundup. One thing I was wondering about that we haven't talked about is there's a bunch of counties that might be moving back from purple to red tier. And what does that really mean? Can folks go back to indoor dining, maybe movie theaters? It's a good question. And I uh, found myself wondering the same thing because we've been in these purple tiers and had these stay-at-home orders for for so long, I forgot what it what it means to move from purple to red. So I pulled up the fa- a little list. I gave myself a little refresher. Yes, in the red tier, you can eat indoors at a restaurant. Also, movie theaters open. I think like zoos and aquariums can open again. There are a lot of changes between the purple and red. And as these cases go down, we will see some counties moving there in the next few weeks. Still means very limited number of people inside these places. And so we'll see if movie theaters and restaurants even want to open to that capacity because it's pretty limited. But yeah, I was thinking about movie theaters, too, and how we used to all basically sit in each other's laps. Or if someone crawled over you to get through the row, you know, it's just like, okay. And now I don't know that we would be okay with that. Even with a mask on. Yeah, too close to me now. Too close for comfort. Well, that's California State of Mind for this week. Next time, join us for a conversation with California Surgeon General Nadine Burke-Harris. Governor Newsom appointed her to that newly created position in 2019. Now she's part of the primary team overseeing the state's management of the pandemic. We'll talk about that and also about her special expertise in the lifelong health effects of childhood trauma. That's next time. See you next week, Elizabeth. See you, Nicole. Have a great week. California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Tess Figland and produced by Jen Picard. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Devin Cortan is the technical director. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Margarita Noriega and Chris Bruno are masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong. Nick Miller is editor at Cap Radio and Joe Barr is our chief of content. Dave Lesher is editor at Cal Matters. Thanks for listening to California State of Mind. See you next week. Support for California State of Mind comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Proud supporters of independent thought, whether that's in a podcast, on the radio, or in a bottle. More at SierraNevada.com. And from Sutter Health, dedicated to making healthcare accessible during these challenging times. From same-day appointments to virtual visits, Sutter strives to provide patients the care they need. Learn more at SutterHealth.org.